Well, I'm grateful to my friends, to our friends, Matt Odom, who was able to come and preach last week while both John and I were away. It's good to have friends who can come and do that. A number of you have told me how much you enjoyed Matt. He's come and preached for us before, and you've enjoyed him before, and I'm glad for that. I also heard that Cameron Mullins tried to create an insurrection with the interns to take over the whole church. And so far we've reached a peaceful accord with that, but who knows, it might happen yet. But this morning we're back to Revelation. Chapter 6 is where we'll be, and you can see that on page 6 there, and page 7, an extended reading there in your bulletin. And the colorful symbolism continues as John watches the action of this vision unfold and relates it to us. And you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw how the Son of God, the Lamb who was slain, has now taken from the Father's hands the scroll, the task of accomplishing redemption. And now He, the only one who is able and worthy to do this, begins to reveal its contents. So you young Christians, you young disciples, as you pay attention to this reading that we're about to take a look at. It's a tricky picture that you're about to see. There are some bad things coming our way. See if you can tell who is it that sends these things and why. This is Revelation 6, beginning in verse 1, and then the beginning of of chapter 8 as well. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us. Would you give us your spirit so that we might understand this strange scene? Lord, help us to believe your word, to trust that it's true, and to grow in faith and Christ-likeness even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ten days ago, you know, a man walked onto an Oregon Community College campus armed to kill You've seen the news reports. You've heard it a number of times now. He took over a classroom and gunned down the professor. And then he began to question the students in the classroom. And as far as I can tell from the reports that I've heard of it, his infliction of evil did not discriminate. Only a designated messenger boy was intentionally spared a bullet. And his line of questioning, as we're told in the reports, was basically this. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? And the reports make it kind of hard, for me at least, to tell if the answer that was given to the question really mattered in the end because he gunned down everyone that he seemed to be able to gun down. Certainly there were some Christians there in that room that day who lost their lives from this earth because of what they professed to believe in the gospel. But there were others who died there that day too. And so it's another grievous tragedy that demonstrates the very hard truth of Revelation 6, and that is this. Evil and suffering are an undeniable part of living in this world And their effects reach everyone. Now another act has opened in this unfolding drama of Revelation. You you heard it read moments ago. John wrote, I watched when the Lamb opened the seals. And then the horsemen come and they do their work. And the saints cry out for justice and some conclusion. And then the kings and the great ones and everyone flees from the wrath of God And then silence overtakes heaven for a time. And then with peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, the curtains close on another scene. So what have you witnessed here? What have you seen 
here in this picture from Revelation. What does this scenery tell you about the progress of redemptive history, about the coming of the gospel in this world? If you understand the the structure of the book of Revelation, and I've spoken of this a bit, some in past weeks, then it's really not that hard to understand. If you recognize that the visions of this book unfold not in some sequential and chronological order over the course of history, but rather they unfold in parallel with one another. Each one looks at the same thing. Redemptive history. But each one looks at that from a different vantage point to show you a different scene, a different emphasis of the same redemptive history. So what does this vantage point show you? It shows you, for one, a devastating reality. The first four seals are all of a kind, aren't they? They're all similar. It's easy to tell. The first one is opened and a thunderous voice beckons, come and And what comes? A horse with a rider. And then the second seal is broken open and a thunderous voice beckons, Come! And what comes? A horse and a rider. And so on with the third seal and the fourth seal. Here you've met what our general broad culture knows. Whether Christian or not Christian, we all know of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They tend to inject themselves into our culture in some different ways. And and they, even as so much of Revelation does, have some vague Old Testament background. In Zechariah, that minor prophet right at the end of the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 6, there's this picture given of four chariots that God sends out to roam the earth. And each chariot is led by a team of horses. One team is white. Another team of horses is red. Another team of horses is black. And another team of horses is dapple in color. I don't know if that's the same as pale, but perhaps it is. You horse lovers might know. They go out to patrol the earth. And here's a similar image here in Revelation. Who are these? Who are these four horsemen? Well, I I think pretty clearly these are a symbolic representation of one of the most perplexing realities that mankind throughout all the ages has had to struggle to understand. The first horse is white. Let's step through them quickly here. The first horse is white, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The repetition is emphatic. This horse represents conquest. Certainly the military and political conquest of nations taking over nations of despots and rulers taking over unwilling masses of people. But it's not just military. It's the conquest of men building their own kingdoms, of women building their own kingdoms. In every household, there are kingdoms being built, conquest being had over other members of the family. This is the conquest of the strong exploiting the weak. The second rider is red. Uh, This rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, that people should slay one another. And he's given a great sword. This one, again, I think is is pretty clear. The, The horse is red like blood. This one represents war, most commentators say. It represents all the ways that people slay one another. And 
There's much slaying done at war, but there's much slaying done in the war of our daily lives, too. We all have been slain in different ways, and we all have slayed in different ways. This horse represents everything from the theoretical nuclear holocaust all the way down to social media bullying. All the ways that we slay one another, this horse shows. The third one is black, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. In times of scarcity in the ancient world, food would be rationed out by means of a scale measuring to see how much could be given to each person because not much was available to be given. This horse, most suggest, represents famine. And there's a voice that comes from the midst of the four living creatures, apparently coming from the throne itself, confirming this. The voice says, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, you may know that a denarius in the ancient world was a day's wage. In Dallas, in the modern day, if you have a minimum wage job, a day's wage might be 60 or $80, depending on how much you work for a day. And a quart of wheat, I'm no expert baker, but I would imagine that it might make a small loaf of bread. Can you imagine paying 80 bucks for a small loaf of bread? That simply means there's not much available The prices are high, but oil and wine is still available for the wealthy and the privileged who can afford it. Williams-Sonoma is still in business, even if the common grocery store is having trouble. There might be a hint of injustice here, maybe exploitation by the wealthy over the poor. But then the fourth horse comes along, and even the wealthy and the privileged can't escape this one. The fourth horse is pale, the color of death, and its rider's name was death, and Hades followed after him. This one is not hard to figure out. This one represents death. This one has the authority to kill a fourth of the earth, the fourth of the world, it says, with sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts. This is death in all the forms in which it comes, all of its variety coming with no discrimination, This horse doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't care whether you're educated or not. It doesn't care whether the color of your skin is white, black, brown, or tan. It doesn't care where you're from or where you're going. This horse takes all. This is kind of a downer, isn't it? Conquest and war and famine and death. This is what the book of Revelation presents to us because it's very real. When we see evil and suffering, like injustice, genocide, disease, cruelty, birth defects, exploitation, the calamity of natural disasters, and all the other shapes that evil and suffering take, we have to admit it forces a thoughtful person to wonder, at least inside, if not verbally, is there really a God? Is there really a God? And if so, is God all-powerful? Is He really powerful if God does exist? And if He is powerful, is He good? And if He's both of those things, then why is there evil and suffering? It's a devastating reality for which... I would suggest to you, of all the world's religions and philosophies, only Christianity 
actually has a reasonable answer. The book of Revelation wants you to see that God is good and God is all-powerful. But at the same time, He's not the author of evil. Rather, He is the destroyer of it. And so if evil and suffering are at His disposal, why doesn't He just dispose of it, we wonder? Why doesn't He just get rid of it and spare us the trouble? Because it's a devastating reality for everybody, Christian or not. And to many, it simply seems pointless. And that's why some of our hearts are skeptical in the trials and sufferings of life that we endure inevitably. But in the eternal counsels of the Almighty, there is purpose even for pain. You remember the Old Testament reading moments ago from Ezekiel 14. It's kind of a strange, obscure reading in which God speaks to his people and he warns them of coming judgment for their rebellion against him. And he uses a train of logic to go through his argument against them. And he says, listen, if a land, a nation, rebels against God and he lifts his hand against them in judgment, none of them will be spared. Even if there is a righteous person or two there, they're not going to take care and cover for that country. None of them will be spared How much more than Jerusalem, he says. Did you hear that? How much more Jerusalem, my own people who have left me and turned their backs against me, how much more will Jerusalem see the judgment and discipline of their God by means of sword and famine and pestilence and wild beasts? It's a hard reality. But then there's the gospel. Did you hear what he said? He said, but some survivors will be left. There will be a remnant spared. Some sons and daughters will survive. And you will know them by their deeds. I think of kind of a a campy Christian song. You know, you'll know us by our love. You thought that was a New Testament song. It's an Old Testament Ezekiel song. You'll know them by their deeds and by their works. And Ezekiel's encouragement to the people of God is this. And then you shall know that God has not done these things in vain. Then you'll know that God had a purpose in bringing the hard reality that he did into your lives because he has a sovereign purpose. The fifth and sixth seals shift gears just a bit to show us that, I think. They narrow things down to the cry of the martyrs and then they widen things out to the catastrophe of the second coming of Christ. He opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the testimony they bore. God does not spare his own from the effects of evil and suffering, but neither will he spare evil to flourish. And so the sixth seal comes and brings the calamity that's much like Jesus' words in Mark chapter 13 And the other Gospels, Jesus said this, In those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then will the Son of Man come in the clouds with great power and glory. It's symbolic language. There's no reason for us to expect that just because a a full moon is in lunar eclipse to see Jesus coming because of that. It's symbolic language to give us the sense that God is coming in judgment, in his sovereign purpose. But what is the sovereign purpose of God in the book of Revelation? And in fact, in the whole Bible, what is the sovereign purpose of God? Do you know? 
It's this. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the one-sentence summary of the book of Revelation. And in a sense, that's the one-sentence summary of the entire Scripture. Even when suffering comes on those inside that church, still God's purpose is being fulfilled. So what has God accomplished by subjecting even Christians to evil and suffering? I mean, that's something that you and I have to struggle with and, and, and figure out in some sense, as we make our way through this life. What has God accomplished by subjecting even his own people to the effects of evil and suffering? Well, we like to say a number of things about that, and these things are true. We like to say that God does this in order to sanctify us, to to grow us in maturity, to deepen our faith, and to grow us in grace, and that's true. We also like to say that he reminds us through evil and suffering that this world is not our home. Ultimately, we have something greater to look forward to, and that also is true. But there's another reason for it, and that's the reason that Revelation is after here, and that reason is this. Our endurance of evil and suffering and its effects gives Christians credibility in the eyes of the world. After all, what's he doing? He's building his church. And what are these souls told who have found refuge under the altar in the fifth seal? They're told, rest until the full number of your fellow servants is complete, for they also will suffer. God is building his church. When I was a freshman in college, I remember an older friend of mine there telling me the story. We were both Christians already, and he was telling me the story of, of being in college and having the chance to be salt and light in the lives of others. And he said, a friend in my dorm saw me and my other friend, who's a Christian, after a few months, and he simply said, look, you guys, there's something different about your lives and the way you conduct your life. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about you, and, and I'm curious what it is. And my friend was encouraging me to say, hey, it's really cool when this happens because people see how different you are. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'll look forward to that opportunity. You know what? It never happened. Nobody ever said to me, hey, you're different. You know what? Your neighbor doesn't care if your garage is perfectly organized. Your neighbor doesn't care if your kids get straight A's in school. Your neighbor doesn't care about how in order your life is, what your neighbor needs to see is how you suffer. The Apostle Peter put it this way. You heard this. Don't be surprised at trials when they come as though something strange were happening to you, but rather rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. But guess what? His glory is revealed in your suffering. God is not callous toward your suffering. I mean, listen, you've got to understand, this is the difference between Christianity and all the other world religions. God is not callous toward your suffering. In fact, He came and took on flesh and subjected Himself to it in order to free you ultimately from its grip. But His work is not yet done. And, as an old church father said, the blood of the martyrs 
is the seed of the church. So I want to give you two examples of that. One is, is an old example and one is a, a current example. I've been reading a book. It's right here up here. I'm going to read a brief quote to you from it. It's a book by a sociologist. Now, I know that doesn't sound really exciting. It's not exactly John Grisham. But it is fascinating. This book is called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in Just a Few Centuries. It's an interesting study. And this writer, Rodney Stark, explains how twice in the decades following the book of Revelation and its writing, the Roman Empire came under siege by an enemy that is far greater than any army. Infectious disease. Epidemics swept through the Roman Empire. In the year 165 A.D., what most think probably was the first arrival of smallpox in a society at large swept through the Roman Empire. And over the course of 15 years of this epidemic, one out of every four, if not one-third, of the entire population died. They had no idea of germs and bacteria. They didn't know anything about infectious diseases. Even the doctors of the time had no idea what to do with such an invisible enemy. Less than 100 years later, the same thing happened. Twice over the course of 100 years, infectious disease and epidemics swept through the empire. And both times, the number of Christians in the empire, this sociologist suggests with good evidence, increased relative to the population. And he suggests a number of reasons for that. One is that Christians survived more readily than others because their friends were willing to nurse them back to health because they weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid of death, and they loved their brothers and sisters, and so they were willing to risk their own lives to care for them, and so many of them recovered. Others outside the church, on the other hand, did not. There was a famous physician at the time named Galen who fled Rome as soon as he realized what was happening, and there was nothing he could do about it. Many did that. The wealthy, those who were able to flee the city and go out in the country where they wouldn't be exposed to other people, did just that. Dionysius, who was a leader of the church in the second epidemic, wrote about it. And this is what he, he wrote, describing the church and its response to this suffering. He said, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their place. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of elders, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation, so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. On the other hand, this is what was happening outside of the church. He says, The pagans behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, 
and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Christians responded to suffering, even to death, as the pale rider swept through the Roman Empire in a completely different way than the rest of the world. And people were drawn to the church. They recognized the love of Christ in the pains of death, and they came to faith. The second example is a more modern one. It's happening right now over in the Middle East. In the nation of Syria, Christian Aid Mission reports that back in August, a group of local Syrian Christians former Muslims, stayed in their village as ISIS took over the village. They intended and were insistent upon remaining in order to care for and help those who were caught in the crossfire. And eventually ISIS, of course, captured this group of Christians and they put them to death, including the 12-year-old son of the leader of this group, a man who at the time was pastoring nine house churches. And... The report from Christian Aid Mission says the underground church has mushroomed in the past 16 months. One former ISIS fighter traveled to Amman, Jordan, because he heard that his relatives were receiving aid there from Christians. He went skeptical of them and actually attended one of their Christian meetings intending to kill them. But what he saw there stayed his hands, and he met Jesus and was born again. This is in the past six weeks. And the director of that meeting from that night said this. He said, these things have been very hard on me. What wrong did those people do to deserve to die? What's happening actually is more and more people are being saved. The ministry we have is growing and growing. In the past, we used to pray to have one person from a Muslim background come to the Lord. Now there are so many, we can barely handle all the work among them. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Suffering in the life of a Christian actually reveals the glory of Christ. Evil and suffering are an opportunity. They're an opportunity to demonstrate to the world by our own lives that God has come into our suffering himself and endured the evil that we see before us in order to reconcile us to himself. Now, you may have your own trials to face. I know some of them. I certainly don't know all of them. You face illness. You face old age. You face persecution in the the particular ways that you see it in your life. You may have a needy child that is very taxing on you. You may even face impending death. We all ultimately do. And your hope in the face of such trial is, ironically, exactly what the watching world needs to see. Now, if you don't, if you recognize that you really don't face any particular trial that's overwhelming to you at the moment, then the question for you and for me is this. Where in your life are you actually moving towards what these writers are leaving behind? 
because they're leaving a lot behind. Even right here in Dallas, even today, these four horsemen are leaving behind all kinds of chaos. And as the church and as a Christian within it, where in your life are you moving yourself towards those effects in order to bless? After all, those who would perish in the sixth seal are asking a great question in verse 17. Did you see their question? It's a monumental question. The great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? There's an answer to that question, and chapter 7 gives the answer. We skipped over that this week. We'll come back to it. But for now, those who can stand know a very meaningful silence. Chapter 7 is the interlude to answer the question, but chapter 8 brings us to the seventh seal, and it's just a bit different from the others, isn't it? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now that silence won't last long because then I saw the seven angels just stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. The trumpets are coming. But before they do, the silence brings something very powerful. Look at verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God. There was silence in heaven. We thought briefly about trying to liturgically imitate that silence. It was kind of complicated to figure out how to do that. We didn't quite do it. There was silence in heaven. In the midst of the hurricane of redemptive history, kind of like the eye of the storm passing across and leaving the eerie stillness of the air, there's silence in heaven. And for what purpose? The prayers of the saints. The prayers of all the saints rise up before the throne of God in the silence of heaven for half an hour. So does prayer change God's mind? I mean, what's the, what's the deal? Why here in the seventh seal, prayer? Does prayer change God's mind? I mean, I don't think so. Surely not. Because you've never offered an idea to God that he didn't think of first, right? You've never offered him a line of logic that he hadn't designed and placed in your brain. And so why is prayer so important? Well, why is your four-year-old child so important that the distress of a bad dream in the middle of the night becomes your 2 a.m. lullaby. She's your child. When God's children cry out, He listens. When God's children suffer and appeal to Him for aid, He hears them. Even through the turmoil and the chaos of redemptive history, He puts it all on pause and hears his sons and daughters in distress. He doesn't avoid your cry and pretend like it's not so bad. He doesn't minimize your cry and then contrast it with something that you really ought to think is worse. He doesn't even trivialize your cry by saying something nice to get you off of his case. He listens and he hears. Because as the sovereign God, he can dictate silence in his heaven 
in order to hear the concerns of his sons and his daughters. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Our prayer rises quietly to heaven. And then God throws it back to the earth with thunder. And things change. These four horsemen of the apocalypse, make no mistake, they are not a future event. They've been galloping across through the four corners of the globe for ages and ages and ages, wreaking havoc, and they are even on this day. And only Christianity can explain it. Only in our gospel has God, all-powerful and all-good, stepped right into that calamity, faced down death, and then offered life to all who trust Him. So, look through the lens of this vision and praise the God of eternity who meets you even in your trouble. Amen and amen. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that you are the God of all things, that no calamity is beyond your reach, that you, O Lord, have decreed all things that come to pass. And even if we don't understand the extent of them, even if we don't understand the pain of what they bring, Lord, yet we know that you have done these things with purpose. You've not acted in vain. You've brought difficulty to all in judgment, and yet you spare the remnant of your church, and you are patiently drawing people to it even now over the course of these years. We pray that you would do that to your own glory. For Jesus' sake, amen.